When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, but you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the, the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive and he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Good evening. Thanks, Judith, for reading. My name is Zim. I'm on staff here in the evening service team. I'm also training for ordination in the Church of England. It's great to be with you. Let me add my welcome to Jamie's. Great to see you all this evening. Um, we're going to be in uh, thinking about uh, this topic of how can I know truth in an age of suspicion. But before we do that, why don't I pray for us to receive God's word? Let's pray. As we stand earlier on, fling wide you heavenly gates. Psalm 24 says, lift up your heads you gates, be lifted up you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. And so, Father, we pray by your Holy Spirit, would you help us to fling wide the gates of our hearts and let in your spirit that we might know your truth. This evening we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as you know, we're in this series on how on earth, and this is the final in the series, and we're thinking about this, issue, this topic of how can I know truth in an age of suspicion. Uh, I've been recently watching the BBC documentary series, Putin versus the West. I don't know if that's one other people have come across before. Um, I've been watching it, and I, as I was viewing this documentary, one of the most uh, fascinating things about it is the unprecedented access it has to very high-level politicians across the divide, both Western politicians and, and Russian politicians, and they sort of interview these, these men and women, and over and over again, what seems to happen is they, they sort of ask them about the same events, maybe a UN conference they're all at, or, or a meeting at the Foreign Office, and over and over, they have completely different narratives about how things went down, completely different stories about who's to blame for the breakdown of uh, relationships. And as, you, as I watched this, the effect it had on me was a sort of deep feeling of suspicion about the world that I live in and its leaders. Who can I trust? Uh, the documentary series actually follows how the, the events uh, led, leading up to the war in Ukraine unfolded. And I don't know if you can cast your mind back to that time, but one of the most iconic images for me still about that time is uh, this image you'll come up on the screen 
of um, sort of Russian state television. So the, in the foreground, you have this woman, Russian state TV, spinning the official line of the, of the Kremlin that there is no war in Ukraine. It's just a special operation. And in the background, you have a woman with a sign saying, stop the war, no more war, protesting. And so whose truth are we to believe? Putin and Kremlin, I want to suggest to us, are only a symptom of a cultural shift, a cultural moment that we live in. It seems we're increasingly living in an age of suspicion where people are asking, how can I know what is true? How can I know what is truth in an age of suspicion? That is the question people are asking amidst different narratives about the death of Alexei Navalny, different narratives about Trump and his court cases, or maybe more personally for you in your life, maybe you, you sometimes get a sneaking suspicion that you're being discriminated against, or maybe you're being bullied but you can't put a finger on it, or misogyny, or whatever it might be. And we have this suspicion that we can't trust people, and we can't trust things the way they are. Now, in, in this talk, we're not going to try and solve the dark web, or expose the Illuminati, or kind of out the Kremlin. We, we can't, we're not going to do that in one sermon. But what I want to suggest is that those things are just symptoms of a major shift in how we view the world. And here's how one philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, put it some time ago. He says this, what things would have to collapse now that this belief that is in God has been undermined because they were built upon it. For example, our entire European morality does not the discipline of the scientific spirit only begin when we, allowed, when we are no longer allowed any convictions. See, what Nietzsche is saying is that this is a major shift that has happened. That people have come to believe that the only way to have true knowledge is if it's something that can be tested and proven scientifically. And so, therefore, you should be suspicious. You should be suspicious about believing anything that can't be tested and proven by science. Say, for example, believing in a God you've never seen, or worse still, a man called Jesus who claims to be God. But do you see Nietzsche's question there? In a world without God, actually, is there any real purpose to moral convictions like love or honesty or goodness or beauty? You see, without God, does not truth just become up to us? Is it not just a human construct decided by whoever has the most power? And so this is a, a sort of a massive shift compared to the things that Jesus said and taught. In our passage uh, read by Juliet, Jesus said this in John chapter 15, when the advocate comes who I'll send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. And so, according to Jesus, here's a big thing that he's up to in the world. Here's a, the big thing that he's doing. He has sent the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, and the spirit will testify to truth. Truth about him. Testify just means speaking words. The Holy Spirit has given words to Jesus' disciples. Those words are now written in the Bible. And Jesus' whole purpose for you and for I 
is that we'll receive and believe those words, that testimony, as the truth. But is this not a very weak and naive thing in a world where truth has to be proven scientifically? I mean, why should anyone build their entire life on mere words spoken by someone? I mean, even as Christians, we, we, we might struggle with this. We might, we might also be suspicious about Jesus' claims. I know for me in my life, there, there are times when other Christians have tried to speak into my life the truth about Jesus, and actually I've reacted with suspicion and defensiveness. It might be that some Christian friends, I remember at university, they, you know, challenging me and questioning me about whether I was ashamed to talk about Jesus to my friends. And my, re- my reaction was sort of defensiveness and how dare you kind of challenge me. Or, or teaching I've heard uh, over the years in Christian contexts that have challenged views that I had uh, about sex and dating. And I wonder what it might be for you as you listen this evening. You see, we can also feel like Jesus' truth claims are a sort of power play to oppress us. But I want to, what I would invite us to see this evening is actually that the opposite is true. The opposite is true, because actually what we're going to see is two things. The suspicion leads to despair, but trust leads to flourishing. Now, let me just be really clear before we go any further. I'm, I'm not saying that it's wrong to be suspicious in any circumstance. That, that would leave you open to abuse. But what I am saying is this, and what we're going to see is that a, a general culture, a general sort of posture of suspicion, well, in the long run, it is despair. And so let's see together. Suspicion leads to despair. Uh, here is a one way you can chart our culture. It will come up on the screen. Um, basically the way culture seems to work in the West is this, the ivory tower sort of ideas, you know, by weird people in some tower somewhere doing philosophy in academia, well those sort of ivory tower ideas, well they tend to make their way into the arts and that tends to make its way into the wider culture and yes, into the church as well and so actually when we begin to detect that something's going wrong in our culture or generally we can blame a bunch of dead men, uh, and generally it is literally dead men. (laughs) Uh, One of those dead men is is Plato. Uh, I don't know if you've heard about him. He's the GOAT, the greatest philosopher of all time. And Plato had the the bright idea of separating how we know stuff into a a premiership, a top league, and a championship, a lower league. Sorry if you championship team here. Forgive me, but that's, that's the way it works. Premiership, top league, championship, lower league. And in this, in this lower league, well, Plato called everything in that league of knowledge, opinion. In fact, it's not really knowledge, according to him. For Plato, anything that you know through your visible senses, anything that you, you sort of have to see, touch, sense to know things, well, he says that's not truth because there must be higher explanations for the things in the world. And so Plato took truth and he placed it in the upper league. And he says, that's what truth is. Things that you know intellectually. That's what counts as knowledge. Intellectual ideas like the perfect tree, the perfect goodness, the perfect beauty. And so basically Plato created a conflict of truth. A conflict of truth between our reason and our experience, between our mind and our body. 
and we have inherited that conflict. Uh, let's, I think a common example, something that many people struggle with uh, with Christianity is this. Why does God seem so obsessed with what I do with my body and who I do it with? But is it possible that we only ask that question because we've actually restricted truth to the things I think and desire in my mind and we've reduced the body to a sort of worthless shell for getting pleasure. And actually, so this, this conflict of truth between our mind and our bodies is actually more harmful than we think, more harmful than we realize. Uh, the Christian writer Nancy Piercy, in her book, Love Thy Body, she explores this idea that the true you is, is your mental thoughts and your mental feelings. And so she asks, well, if that's the case, well, when the concept of personhood is detached from biology, detached from your body, but what about people with disabilities? Or the terminally ill? Or the mentally ill? Or the elderly? Well, well here's how one bioethicist answers that question. He says this, a person who has lost all of these capacities, the mental capacities to reason and form relationships, cannot in any meaningful way be called a person any longer. Wow. I mean, good luck if you go to A&E and he's in charge, right? I mean, how's that going to go when you turn up in hospital? You see, we've arrived at a point where as we undermine belief in God, we, we are beginning to question the idea that all humans are of equal dignity and worth. And, and that is scary. Let's look at another shift in the way we think uh, now in the West, the so-called postmodernism of the 20th and 21st century. And another dead guy to help us out, the philosopher John Paul Sartre, he, he says this, it is we who give life a meaning and value is nothing more than the meaning that we give it. Uh, this is what people call postmodernism. It's the reaction to basically a world without God. If there is no God, there are no universal truths. And if there are no universal truths, then it's, it's up to you and I to simply create our own meaning, to make our own truth. Be true to yourself. That is a mantra. And actually, that sounds really liberating at first, doesn't it not? I mean, be true to myself. Who doesn't want to do that? It's really liberating. And, you know, as a millennial, I sort of grew up with some real bangers, like in the late 90s, and I remember the... Chart topper, Ultranate, I don't know if you remember the one is, you're free. You gotta hear the front there. You to be what to do, what do you want to do? You gotta live your life. Do what do you want. Great, yeah, you remember the one? Remember the one? That's the one. There you go, thank you very much. So someone enjoyed it. And it's it's really exhausting though, not not singing it, living that way. Um, <laughs> It's actually really exhausting because actually if true meaning is up to my choices, then actually, well, what if I'm not in the job of my dreams? I'm missing out, missing out on my purpose. I've ruined my life. What if there's a better partner out there for you? You've ruined your life. What if, what if, what if? And there's constant FOMO, constant anxiety. And so it's no wonder that 
You know, one recent survey by CNN and Gallup has found that from generation to generation, anxiety is getting worse. This survey follows different groups of people between the age of 18 to 26. And so when Gen, when Gen X were at that age, well, 20% of them felt that they were not thriving mentally. But that number rises to 27% for millennials and nearly 40% for Gen Z. And so it's not working, is it? This sort of culture of suspicion toward truth leads to despair. But there is good news, because actually many people are finding a different story, a better story about truth. And Jesus is inviting us to that story. Jesus is inviting us tonight to see that trust leads to flourishing. An attitude of trust leads to flourishing. At his trial, Jesus said this to Pontius Pilate. He says, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. I don't know if, do you feel the weight of that statement? The whole reason God the Son, who has existed eternally in bliss and satisfaction with the company of his Father and the Spirit, being worshipped by a myriad of angels, would take on flesh, be born as a baby, work as a poor carpenter, and die in agony on a cross, was to testify to the truth. To do that thing that we find so unimpressive of giving us words that we might rely on. Do you find this unbelievable that, that God would go through that to give us words? Well, even Pilate reacted like a postmodern skeptic. He said, what is truth? What is that? Yet Jesus calls him, and he calls you and I, to believe in his testimony, in words, his words, as truth. And so the question is, why and how should we do that? Well, let me propose a way forward. Jesus invites us to see this, that knowing the truth is not a scientific experiment, primarily, but a relationship to be experienced. Knowing the truth is a relationship to be experienced. In our Bible reading, Jesus said to his disciples, John chapter 16, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. All that belongs to the Father is mine. The spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Did you see that? You cannot, you cannot know the truth on your own. Pure, individual, autonomous reason is not the path to true knowledge. Knowing the truth requires guidance, requires the ultimate guide, the Holy Spirit, who is the source of all truth and all goodness. It requires him to guide us into the truth, into a relationship with God, the Trinity. Did you spot the pattern? The Father, God the Father, well, he sent God the Son, and God the Son sends God the Spirit to guide us into truth, to guide us into that relationship that has existed before all time and grounds all reality. We're being invited into the one truth that existed before Plato, before Putin, before postmodernism, the eternal relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the source of all goodness and all life. And Jesus is saying, come. 
And he's drawing us into that dance of truth, that eternal relationship. Like a groom guiding his, his bride in a dance, Jesus says, come and experience, come and know Father, Son, and Spirit. Come and know God, and you can know the truth about the world, about yourself, just the way God sees it. And I just wonder, I just, let's, just, um, let's just pause and just consider what we're talking about, because we're talking about, uh, we're on holy ground. As we consider the, the sort of the inner life of God, that he would reveal to us the, the, the reality, the proper reality of who he is, the things that angels worship and cannot grow sort of bored of doing, the things that prophets li- long to look into, and now disclose to us that the God at the center of the universe is an eternal relationship of love, of a spirit breathed out by Father, of a son who is given in love and is the Father's word, and that he will draw us into himself, the one who is eternal bliss and blessedness and satisfaction. Why don't you just, just take a minute now and just, just, to, just to praise him and to worship and to think that God would make himself known the depths of his being, the truth of who he is, the one who is independent and needs nothing from anyone, who has always had love, who gives all of reality as a pure gift, that there is something rather than nothing, is an overflow of that father, son, and spirit relationship. Bounty and goodness filling the world with more complexity and beauty and, and love than it needs. Why don't you just dwell on him for a moment and just worship him and just think that this is the one who calls you, the father of lights that proceed from heaven, the one whom there is no shadow of shifting, who is all truth. Why don't you just bow before him in your mind and your heart and adore him, that he wants you to know him, to be in that dance, to be in that relationship of love, to fill you with life overflowing, for you to experience him in all his depth and goodness. The one who is Yahweh, Adonai, El Shaddai, We worship and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. All the earth is full of his glory. That he invites us in. And so as Jesus extends to us that offer to receive this invite, well, it is going to require trust rather than suspicion. Ultimately, we can't know much at all without trust. There's nothing much you can know without trust. Why, why do I know where I was born? Well, I've got to, I've got to trust my parents <laughs> that they're not lying to me. I've got to trust that my birth certificate is real, that it's not a forgery. And so actually, on my own, I've got no memory or no knowledge of where I was born. I've got to trust. And this God invites us through Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, to trust his words. The medieval medieval theologian, St. Anselm, said it this way. He says, those who have not believed will not find by experience. 
and those who have not found by experience will not know. Did you spot the order there? It says, first, first believe, first trust. Then you will experience the reality of God. And then you will know. You have the aha moment. This is truth. And so do you see, we can't, there's no way around trust. We've got to trust. He's not saying switch off your brains. We're not saying stop thinking critically. But Jesus is inviting us to say, look, why don't you just try my words on for size? Just, just try, try on his words for size and see, just try following them and see if they don't make sense of life, of you, of the world, of where you're going, of God. Why don't you just try them on and see? And so as we end, uh, come to a close. Let me tell you about a real person who has tried this. I've changed her name in a photo to protect sort of identity, but this is a real person's story, a Nero story. Uh, Nero was raised in a wealthy family in the Middle East. Uh, she, she sort of grew up there, but very sadly, she was um, sexually abused uh, from the age of 12, uh, right up until she left home as an adult. Uh, and as you can imagine, all her life, this, this experience crippled Nero uh, with a sort of deep sense of shame uh, she says in her story that um, she felt worthless. She says, you feel worthless even though what happened to you is not something you caused. You feel as if you brought it upon yourself. Uh, as the years went on, Nira ended up going to a university in America. And wonderfully there, she made some great friends, some great Christian friends. Uh, and they invited her to, to read the Bible. They, they gave her a Bible. She'd never seen one before. And as she began to read those words about Jesus in the Bible, she says, she says this about that experience. She says, a lot of things started to make sense. Growing up, I went through the pain of guilt for years. But one night, reading the Bible at 3 a.m., all of a sudden, I got really happy. I couldn't stop laughing. I learned that Christ and God and the Holy Spirit was true. I had a feeling of being loved. I felt God was walking alongside me as opposed to judging me. Well, that night at 3 a.m. in the morning, Nero put her trust in Christ. She received him into her life as a Lord, as a Savior. And he's been changing her. Now, since then, the feelings of shame, they, they sometimes resurface in a sort of profound way that hits her. But she says this it's on the screen. She says, when those moments come, what keeps me going is that I look at Christ's life and the people he chose to associate with, prostitutes, lepers, outcasts. And she says, when I look at his life, that's how I know I am not any less worthy than anybody else. Because if God can condescend to be with Mary Magdalene, then God can love me. Now, that is someone who is who has trusted Jesus' invitation. She's received it. She's experiencing the love of God. Well, and now she knows the truth about herself and her God and her place in the world. And she's on that path to flourishing. And so this is Jesus' invite to us, no matter where we're at in our journey this evening, is to, to join that process, to join that dance, to receive that invite, to experience the love of God the Trinity, 
and to know, to know the truth about ourselves and our worth and God's purposes for us. So could I invite you to stand as we pray and come to a close? Would you like to stand? Jesus says, John 16, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And so we we pray in response. Father God, one with the Son, you sent your Son, and we ask that you send your Spirit now. Come, Holy Spirit. As we meet here this evening, would you come and guide us into your truth? You know each of us and where we're at, our journeys, our wrestles, the things that we are struggling with, things that we want to bring to you. And we say, come and be our guide. We want to receive your invites. We want to know the God who is Lord of life, Father, Son, and Spirit. Would you help us to experience him? Help us to receive your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.